As we dive into Ephesians this morning, we're turning the page from chapter 3 to chapter 4, and it really is a big turning point in Paul's letter, because what Paul does is he transitions from three chapters of talking about all that Christ has done for us, and now we transition to three chapters really about how we respond to that. What does it look like to live in Christ? And so this morning, Paul also takes up an issue that's incredibly timely for us, the issue of unity. So let me just ask you, in a world that seems hopelessly divided, does the church have anything to offer? So look with me. Our primary text is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I'll also read from John 17, 20 to 23, which is Jesus' prayer to the Father before his arrest. First Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then from John 17, verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that your spirit would help us to give it the attention that it deserves. Lord, that it comes from you and we understand it through your help and ultimately what happens in our lives from it is for your glory. Lord, so make us good soil this morning. Thank you for the beautiful things that you've given us about this subject of unity. We just pray that you might open our eyes to see and then give us grace to follow Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. So you may have noticed the world has a bit of a unity problem. It seems like everyone is talking about how we're more divided than we've ever been. And it's along all kinds of lines, political lines, racial lines, socioeconomic lines, religious lines, even sports rivalries can turn violent. So we hear about a culture where everything is becoming us versus them, and then we see something like the Mueller report come out and the responses to it from every side just are a painful reminder of where we are. So we have this tendency to focus on our present moment and neglect history. So I think it's worth saying there's nothing new really about the problem of unity. Division is as old as Adam blaming God and Eve blaming the serpent and Cain killing Abel. It goes way back. So it's not a new problem. But what, what makes that even more fascinating is we're still not okay with it. There's something deep within us that feels the pain of the division and longs for unity. What's funny is we consistently do things that make unity impossible, but we still want it. 
And often we hear the pain and the longing in songs because artists have a way of expressing the inexpressible. So what I want to do to start is share with you a few songs, a few attempts really to solve the problem of unity. Some of you probably grew up with this. This is Imagine by John Lennon. So I'm not trying to upset you. Just sharing. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. It's a beautiful song. It was a very successful song. What's the message? If you want unity, just imagine it. Imagine a world with no heaven, no hell, No countries, no religion, no possessions. If we could just get rid of all this stuff that divides us, we would live for today. We would live in peace. We would share the world, and the world would be one. So do you believe that? Here's another example. This is I'm not claiming this is the same poetic or literary value, but this is Union by the Black Eyed Peas. (laughs) Prepare yourself. This might help you wake up. It takes one, just one, and then one follows the other one, and then the other follows the other one. Next thing you know, you got a billion. People doing some wonderful things, people doing some powerful things. Let's change and do some powerful things. Unity could be a wonderful thing. Like I said, not quite Beatles status, but they tried. So what's the message? Really, it kind of sounds like, come on, guys. It just takes one, and then another one, and then you got a billion. Let's change and do some powerful things. Unity could be really cool. See, the problem is most unity anthems talk to us about the symptoms and never get to the root. They offer us solutions, but they never really define the problem. So at the end of the day, these songs feel like dressed-up versions of cliches, like, can't we all just get along? Or like Bob Marley says, one love, one heart. Let's get together and feel all right. If it were that easy, don't you think we'd be in a different place by now in 2019? See, ultimately, the problem of unity is a sin problem. Sin is what alienates and separates. Sin is what divides and destroys. And that's true in our relationship with God. It's true in our relationship with ourselves. It's true in our relationships with other individuals and also other groups of people. Paul Tripp says the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin is fundamentally antisocial. Sin is fundamentally antisocial. Brothers, think about that. There is something inside us that is destructive to community. That's the problem. If we don't get the problem right, we'll never get the solution right. Until the world takes sin seriously, it will never find a solution to the problem of unity. So the best the world can offer is something like, imagine a different world. It's easy if you try, but that imaginary world doesn't exist. And if it did exist, it would still be populated with sinners who would mess it up. 
Getting rid of heaven and hell and countries and religion and possessions won't solve the problem because I'm the problem and you're the problem. But you know what's amazing about the problem of unity is God has already solved it. In a sense, that's what Ephesians 1 through 3 is all about, where we've been. Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to reconcile an alienated humanity to himself. So God is making all things new, which means that in Christ, we are a whole new humanity. So when we see the devastation that sin has caused and we process that, we look at the problem of unity, we should be all the more amazed at the gospel. It should take our breath away because Jesus has solved the problem of unity and now he's given us the pattern and the power to live in unity. So I want to talk about the pattern of unity. If you look at your text, notice again the therefore in Ephesians 4.1. The English teachers are always saying, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's a hinge point because Paul's moving from indicative, telling us about what God has done, to imperative, telling us how we, by grace, should respond. The therefore is really there to tell us Read everything I'm about to say in light of what I've already said, which is to say there's resurrection power behind Paul's call to live the Christian life. Because he's gone about 56 verses and only given us one little command, remember, in chapter 2. And now he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul reminds us that he's a prisoner for the Lord. I think there's a double meaning here. The Lord has taken Paul captive. Jesus has captured him. You can read about that in Acts 9. And Paul sees that bondage now as the only true and real freedom. But in addition, the authorities have actually taken him captive. He is a prisoner, literally. So his faith in Jesus is not just some intellectual exercise. It's cost him his worldly freedom and brought real suffering into his life. So we should be wary of Christian leaders who don't walk with a limp, but that is not Paul. It's all the more reason to lean in and listen to what he says. So what he does, he starts to articulate the pattern of our unity in Christ. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. The first thing to notice is that Paul strongly urges us to walk. My son, John, turned two in November. He was really late to the walking game, (laughs) and he really loves his daddy. So we've logged a lot of hours with him on my arm, like all over Disneyland and everywhere else. And what's, what's interesting is, even though he can walk now, he still prefers to be carried. And it's, Daddy, hold you, is the refrain. And I love it. That's me sad when he, said, when he starts to say, Daddy, hold me. Daddy, hold you. I'm not some heartless beast, and so I still do hold him a lot, but there are these moments when I have to say, John, you know how to walk. You need to walk. And brothers, I think some of us need to be reminded that the Christian life is a walk. It's not just a trip to church on Sunday or to Bible study on Tuesday. It's a walk. It's not just time looking at pages in the Bible. It's a walk. And it's not just intellectual assent or agreement to ideas about Jesus or theology. It's a walk. So Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And it actually took him three chapters to explain the wonder of that calling. Do you remember all that we have in Christ? 
Going back through chapters 1 and 2, let me just remind you. Chapter 1, verse 3, we're blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 1, 4, we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. 1, 5, we were predestined for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. 1, 6, we are for the praise of his glorious grace. 1, 7, we are redeemed by his blood, forgiven of our sins, lavished with his grace. 111, we have an inheritance in him. Even imagine what that means. 118, we have enlightened eyes, and we know the immeasurable greatness of his power. If you turn to chapter 2, you hear about how we are dead in sin, but because of his great love, God made us alive in Christ. In 2.6, we've been raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. In 2.10, we hear that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. In 2.12, we were without hope and without God in the world. 2.13, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. 2.14, we have peace with God and peace with one another through Christ. 2.19, We're members of his body, the church, growing into a holy temple in which he dwells. It's a lot. And I think that's why Paul waited till chapter 4 to urge us to walk. He wanted us to know without a doubt that our life in Christ starts with what Jesus did for us, not with what we do for him. See, if we start with our works and our walk and how we're trying to please God, we're essentially earning our salvation. But if we start by trusting in the perfect, finished work of Christ, we know there's nothing to earn. Some of us hear that and think, I like it. Jesus does everything. I just sit back and do nothing. And if that's what you're thinking, just realize that's not ultimately what Paul is saying. Because we're like street orphans who are dying on the street, and we've been adopted into the most amazing family. If that's you, don't you think it would be evident in the way that you walk what's happened to you? That you would carry yourself a little differently. And we're not walking differently to earn our place in the family. We're walking differently because we're so amazed that we have a place in the family. The Lord is always holding us, but he also wants us to walk. So put simply, the Christian walk is walking with Jesus Jesus often said, come, follow me, which implies knowing a person and going where he's going. So, do we know Jesus personally? And are we going where he's going? In verse 2, Paul starts to describe what these strides might look like. He says, we walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So as we think about this collection of words, I want us to ask, how do we see these things in Jesus and how are they growing in our lives? So consider the humility of Christ. The Greeks looked down on lowliness or humility. They thought it was weakness. But the humility of Christ changed everything. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't demand his rights, even as God. But he laid down his rights and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was the greatest, but 
He put our needs before his own. Have you experienced the humility of Jesus in his coming to save you? And consider the gentleness of Christ. Being gentle or meek is not weakness either. Gentleness is strength under control, like a wild horse that's been broken. Imagine the damage Jesus could have done if he couldn't control his strength. And yet he was master of himself when his disciples were clueless, when the religious leaders were hypocrites, when Herod and Pilate were curious. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest for our souls. What does he say? For he is gentle and lowly in heart. Have you been mastered by the gentleness of Jesus? Consider also the patience or forbearance of Christ. Those two go together. Jesus takes the long view. Waiting centuries to come to earth, waiting 30 years to launch his ministry, he's content to build his church over years and decades and centuries and millennia. How patient is Jesus? Do you realize that he takes the long view with you? Paul knew this. Think about Paul reflecting on his story, how patient the Lord was with him, a guy who's trying to destroy the church. He bears with us more than we will ever have to bear with another person. Do you know the patience of Jesus? And consider the love of Christ. We probably talk about this more than anything, so I'll just say a few things. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love for us. And his love for us is perfect, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I got this from another pastor who spoke on our high school Florida trip once upon a time. Started doing this with my older son. At night, I ask him, if God's got you, who can get you? And he says, nobody. And he kind of smiles. I say, if God is for you, who can be against you? And he goes, nobody. And I say, who can separate you from the love of Christ? And he goes, nobody. And I just, whenever I hear it, I kind of, I don't know, it just, it knocks me over. That's how safe we are in the love of Christ. Do you know the love of Jesus? So walking in humility, gentleness, patience, and love, think about this, what would be the opposite? Walking in pride, harshness, impatience, and hatred. Kind of sounds a little like our world, right? And you see why Paul urges us to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, because where pride and harshness and impatience and hatred rule, there will never be unity. There can't be unity. Where sin reigns, unity is impossible. But when the people of God are walking with Jesus and becoming like him, when humility and gentleness and patience and love are growing, unity is not just a possibility. Unity is the plan. It's God's plan. The more we walk with Jesus, the more we will move toward one another and build the kind of community that only makes sense with the gospel. I think that's what God wants to see happen. A community that only makes sense with the gospel. A community that doesn't make sense without the gospel. Does that excite us? Do we want that? 
Paul says in verse 3, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of the peace, in the bond of peace. So are we eager to cultivate and maintain the unity that we have in Christ? A lot of times we're eager about a lot of other things. But if we're not eager to be united in Christ and to be a light to the world, why are we here? The world is constantly looking through the window of the church and asking, is there anything really to this Christian thing? Is there really anything to this? And if we don't look any different than the world, then they have an alibi to not follow Jesus. But if by God's grace we're looking more and more like Jesus, they'll take notice because it'll be strange to them. And that's why walking in a manner worthy of the calling is so important, not just for us, but for the world that's watching. So Jesus gives us the pattern of unity, and that might seem overwhelming to come and follow Jesus. But remember, the Lord never gives us a pattern without giving us power. So let's focus on the power of unity. So we look at the church, and all we see is division. Maybe just in a local church, maybe in the church across the world. How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit if we don't even see it? Well, most of us are aware of a family, perhaps even our own family, that just seems broken beyond repair. Husband and wife, parents and children, brothers and sisters can't get along. Family members are so divided that they no longer speak. They don't care to see one another. And in these situations, people often accept the new normal and just survive. But you know what's true in that situation? The broken family is still united as a family. Marital bonds, parental bonds, brotherly, sisterly bonds are not so easily broken. So even if no one is fighting to live like a family anymore, they're still family. So how do you think the Lord looks upon his broken, divided church? Through all the mess, the father sees his children precious in his sight. And Jesus looks and sees, even if he were to look out on this room today, sees his bride, spotless, holy in his sight. And God looks looks at us and sees his family filled with his spirit to be a dwelling place for him. Now, we may give up on our families, but the Lord will never give up on his family, on his church. So our division and practice, as it works itself out in the world, Our division and practice will never destroy our union in the person of Christ. And that's why Paul uses the the word one seven times in three verses. And I don't think it's an accident. Seven in the Bible is the number of perfection. This oneness that he's describing is we have this perfect, powerful oneness in Christ. He wants us to know this powerful reality of being united with the triune God. So he says, Verses four through six, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I don't know if you caught it. It says one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. The unity of the Trinity empowers us to be united with God and with one another. So in this sea of denominations and expressions of Christianity, 
Just think about the beauty and simplicity of all this. There's one body. True believers are part of the one church of Christ on earth. Mark Davis loved to say, there's one church in Dallas. There's one spirit. The same spirit indwells every single Christian on the planet, wherever they are, in the city, in the country, living in the woods, living on a mountain. The same spirit, one spirit. There's one hope. In Christ alone, our hope is found. There's one Lord. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. There is one faith revealed in the Word of God, centered on the person of Christ. There's one baptism, the sign of entrance into the family of God. And there's one God and Father of all. I feel like we would just pass over these verses because they don't seem that exciting. This is incredible. If there were two of any of these things, we would have reason to be divided. But in every case, there is one. Do you realize the power of the unity that we have in Christ? These seven ones serve notice really to every dividing wall in the world. Do you realize how radical it is for us to be united to Jesus Christ? Scott Sauls, who's a pastor in Nashville, writes this. He says, Jesus was a first century Middle Eastern Jew who, according to the Bible, was not physically attractive, had no money, was sometimes homeless, hung around with sketchy people, and never spoke a word of English. Those of us who grew up in the West are different from Jesus in almost every way. Generationally, geographically, ethnically, socioeconomically, vocationally, linguistically, and more. Isn't that amazing? Our union with Christ, before we even think about anybody else, our union with Christ himself demonstrates the gospel's power to tear down walls and make people one who would never be one otherwise. D.A. Carson puts it this way, ideally the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of the sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I think that's pretty different from what we have the vision in our minds. So the question is, will our deepest source of unity actually be Jesus, or will it be something else? So like it or not, if we're Christians, we are powerfully united to the triune God and to his people, whoever they are, wherever they are. But there's one more thing. The church's unity is designed to be evangelism for the world. Before he was arrested and tried and crucified, Jesus prayed to his father. In John 17, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus' prayer. So in verses 20 to 23, Jesus actually prays for us, and he prays for unity. Look at these verses on your handout. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, speaking of his disciples right there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which includes us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Jesus must really care about this. He basically prays the same thing twice, that we would be one just as the Father and Jesus are one. In your mind, what's the standard for unity in the church? I don't know. It's probably not the same as the unity between the Father and the Son. That's what Jesus prays. Why does he pray that? He prays that so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. In other words, our unity should force the world to conclude that Jesus really came and that matters. So, you think about all the lines that divide us. Are we seeking a unity that's genuinely puzzling to the world? To be united with people that that might be genuinely puzzling to the world to see you with that person who's also in Christ. Are we seeking a unity that begs the question that people are like, what is going on? So Jesus was about to die, and death has a way of clarifying our priorities. This is one of the last things he prayed, and he prayed it for us. It's beautiful, it's bold, and it's scary. We're scared to love someone different from us. We're scared to reach across the city or reach across the world. We're scared to have someone new at our table on Tuesday morning. They might mess it up. Brothers, they might. They probably will. And that might be exactly what the Lord wants to do in our lives. What happens is over time, the gospel gives us new eyes. The things that used to scare us start to excite us. In Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, Luke basically summarizes what's going on in the early church. This is what the early church was like in Jerusalem. And he says the believers were devoted to things like teaching and fellowship and worship and prayer. Sounds a lot like our churches, but something feels different. He says that awe, A-W-E, awe came upon every soul. Amazing things were happening. The believers were really generous. They were sharing with those who had needs. And I'm sure... They were sharing their faith. But what's interesting is Luke doesn't say, and we were doing a bunch of evangelism, at least not right there. He simply says at the end, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the punctuation. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Have you ever asked why? And maybe why is the Lord maybe not adding to our number day by day those who are being saved? Why were people being saved every day? What if the answer is painfully obvious that the gospel was actually working in the early church? Think about what was going on in Jerusalem. Jew and Gentile were there. Different nationalities were there. Different languages were there. Men and women were there. Slave and free were there. All the natural enemies you can imagine. And then suddenly the Spirit does something and all these natural enemies are united in Christ. And you have the church in Jerusalem. So what had happened? Jesus had solved the problem of unity. He had paid for their sins, torn down the walls, and they are one in Christ. And when people came to Jerusalem, no one ever seen anything like it. 
Why are these people together? They took notice, and they came to check it out. And when they came, they saw normal people learning to follow Jesus, learning to walk, learning to love one another as he had loved them. And the power of God rested on this strange community united in Christ. God was doing miraculous things through his church. One of the greatest miracles was the unity of the church itself. The community itself was doing evangelism. So brothers, do you think the plan has changed? What if the Lord still wants his church to be so united that the world takes notice? Does the world look at us and say, Jesus must have come and the gospel must be true? Let's pray. Father, we come confessing that we really struggle to be united in Christ, even in the same room, but especially with our brothers and sisters in Dallas and in America and around the world who know and love you. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to see ultimately the problem is a sin problem. And Father, I pray you'd help us to see how Jesus has gone before us to live the life of humility and gentleness and patience and love that's changed our lives, changing us to be those who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, help us to see that we have your power in Christ to seek this kind of community. Lord, I pray that you would make your church something that the world just marvels at and that our churches and the church in general, the one church in the world, would again cause people to take notice and that you would add daily to our number those who are being saved. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.